Good evening, lovely people. It's great to be with you. And um, as Jago has just said, um, tonight we are starting the first in our sermon series in Exodus. And we're going to be diving straight into Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2. But before we start looking at the text, before we start looking at those chapters, I thought we would begin, because it's the first one in the series, by setting that book of Exodus in some context. Exodus is the second in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's known as the Pentateuch, Pent Five. Um, And there are five books, these five books, that tell a singular story. They tell the story of the promise, the covenant that God makes with his people. And so understanding what happens in Genesis is key to understanding what happens in Exodus, which is key to understanding the laws in Leviticus and the numbers in Numbers. And in understanding it all, the covenant is key. The covenant is the wellspring, the mainspring from which everything else flows, which means that over the next few weeks, as we look at the book of Exodus, one of the things you'll notice is that occasionally we're going to jump back into Genesis, and we will also go forward into the other three books as well, as they all pick up the threads of this covenant story. And when I use the word story... I don't mean fiction. And I think that's really important to say because story and fiction are two words that are used interchangeably um, in our culture today. But right off the bat, it's important to state that the book of Exodus is not fable. It's not myth. It's historical narrative. And when we record history, through the recording of history, it points to the character of God, the promises and the plans and the purposes of God. It tells a story of what was, and it starts a salvation story that is going to find its full form and its full shape in Jesus. So that's a bit of context about the book of Exodus. Shall we pray before we get into the text of chapters one and two? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you that this story of Exodus is not a story, but it's our story. Lord, thank you that we are your people and you are our God. We know that your word is alive and active and judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. So, Lord, now we pray that you'd purify us. We pray that you would transform us as we look at this scripture. Amen. Right, grab a sheet um, from the end of your pews, and you will see in very, 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 very tiny text, um, chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus. Now, we're not going to read that all together now, because you'll be um, relieved to hear, I'm not going to preach literally verse by verse um, through Exodus, but I am going to take us through it chronologically. So what we're going to do is we're going to read it as we go. Is that okay? Is that okay? Great, lovely. So, Exodus 1. Um, I promised you, and we're going to do it straight away. We're going to jump back. We're going to jump back into Genesis 17, which you don't have on your sheets, but please trust me that I am reading the the word of the Lord to you now. So, Genesis 17, God has promised 
Abraham that he is going to be the father of nations. In Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, I will make you very fruitful. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the descendants to come. And I will be their God. That's Genesis 17. And then we get to the first chapter of Exodus. And as we read those opening verses, what do we see but how God's faithfulness to Abraham is organized? Let's read it. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Iskar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Right at the start of Exodus, in this genealogy, what we are seeing is how God has organized the fruitfulness, the faithfulness that he promised Abraham. Abraham's family is now organized under the names of the 12 sons of his grandson, Jacob. And what we read at the start of Exodus is that that generation dies That generation passes on. But in verse 7, we hear that God continues to remember and be faithful to his promise, to his people. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Do you hear the echoes of Genesis 17 in Exodus 1? God says to Abraham, I will make you very fruitful. Exodus 1, the Israelites, even when that generation has died, continue to be fruitful. It is a picture of abundance. It's a picture of provision, of God's outward faithfulness to his people. And then, from this place of abundance and fruitfulness and provision, history takes a turn for the worst. And why history takes that turn is not explained We do not know why the Israelites suffer, but it is expected. It's not explained, but it is expected. Again, we jump back to Genesis 15, and God saying to Abraham, know for certain. Now, when God says to you, know for certain, that's pretty emphatic. Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. And so what God has spoken to Abraham, we now read in Exodus in the first chapter, is coming to pass. We read in verse 8, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. As happens with history, a new ruler arises. And this ruler does not know and does not care about Joseph's special status, and he does not feel any particular obligation to the descendants of Abraham. In verse 10, look, Pharaoh said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, 
And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Pharaoh is a shrewd political leader. And he knows how to cultivate a state of oppression. The very first thing you do to cultivate a state of oppression is you create a narrative of the other. You create a narrative of fear. Listen to what Pharaoh says. If we don't do something about this migrant population, they will threaten our safety. They'll join our enemies. They'll fight against us. They'll overrun us. The most powerful man in the most powerful empire up to this point in human history is scared. He is scared that his power vested in the nation of Egypt will be destabilized, will be diminished by God's people, the Israelites. So in verse 14... We read, he made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. From the narrative of the other, from the narrative of fear, slavery emerges. And darkness descends for God's people. Now remember, the Israelites are in Egypt by divine command. They are there under divine promise, the covenant. But at this moment in their history, there seems to be no sign of divine intervention. The Old Testament scholar Alex Mottier expresses it brilliantly when he says, at this point in Israel's history, heaven above was as silent as earth around was threatening. The Israelites had known God's faithfulness in times of abundance and provision, but now as heaven was silent, the question arises from the text, are they going to know? Are they going to trust in God's faithfulness in times of adversity? Because it only is going to get worse if we read on. Having been thwarted by the Hebrew midwives, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. In verse 22, Pharaoh puts out an edict across the land. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Do you notice who the edict is given to? Look again in verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. He doesn't command his army. He doesn't command his band of men. He doesn't command his militia to carry out this genocide. He commands all people. Pharaoh is confident at this stage that fear and hatred has gripped the Egyptian nation so much That every Egyptian man and every Egyptian woman, that means every Egyptian mother and every Egyptian father will take a newborn baby out of the hands of every Israelite mother and every Israelite father and throw them into the Nile. As we have seen in Auschwitz, in Rwanda, in Darfur, this is depravity. 
This is deep, deep darkness. This is hell. No mother or father, slave or free, would willingly hand over their newborn child to be thrown into the Nile. They would fight and they would plead and they would sob and they would most likely give their own life up first. And where is God in the midst of this? Where is the God who has promised to remember his people in the midst of this? The Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. When we cannot see God, we need to know who he is. We need to remember his goodness and his mercy and his faithfulness. Because whilst heaven felt silent to the Israelites, what we actually know and what we're actually going to find out as we continue reading is that God was at work. God was ceaselessly and secretly at work behind the scenes. His heart was and it still is, for his people. But the way he works is so often not how we imagine. And it wasn't in the opening chapters of Exodus. In the midst of the darkness, what we start to see, particularly at the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2, is we can, can kind of start to see the hand of God tracing through some characters, the very least likely of characters in Shipra and in Pua, in Jochebed, in Miriam, and in Pharaoh's own daughter. Shipra and Pua are the two midwives that we hear about in verse 15. Now, interestingly, um, before he declares his edict, there's a point where I wonder whether Pharaoh was certain that actually if he tried to get every Egyptian man and woman to do what he wanted, there may have been a point where he wasn't quite sure that fear and hatred had gripped the nation enough. So before he does that, he tries to do an intervention behind the scenes. And so he calls the midwives to him and he says in verse 16, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Pharaoh is not asking them to do something. He's telling them to do it. And they don't. They don't do it. And let's be clear in this exchange. The midwives hold no power, none whatsoever. To say no to the king of Egypt equaled death. Um, slavery is designed to consume a person. That is why it is so awfully effective as a tool of oppression. It brings your mind and it brings your body under the rule of someone else, in this case, Pharaoh's. The midwives defying Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was not just a brave act. Yes, it was brave, but it wasn't just brave. It was prophetic. 
It pushed back the darkness. It said at that point in history, we are not under your rule, Pharaoh. You do not consume our minds and you do not consume our bodies. We are under another's rule. And that rule is God. It was a prophetic act. It announced the deliverance that was to come. You are not our king, Pharaoh. God is. The midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And their story is our story. Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. What is the call on our lives, every single one of our lives? Seek first the kingdom. Seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. The midwife's starting point was not their hatred of Pharaoh. It was not hostility. The midwife's starting point was that they feared the Lord. And these two women had the wisdom and the courage to challenge complicity and oppression, to push back the darkness. Now, today, we may not be standing before a genocidal ruler. Some of us may end up doing that, but most of us will not. We don't stand before a genocidal ruler. But where is the Lord asking us, asking you, to have courage and wisdom to push back the darkness, to challenge those things that consume you and others for darkness, to challenge those things that consume and oppress you and others in the darkness. Where is God asking you today to challenge a workplace culture that doesn't have integrity? Where is God asking you today to challenge a workplace culture that objectifies? Where is God asking you to challenge the culture of your friends that worships greed, having more and more and more? We need to say greed, lust, those things that we have set up in our lives as kings, you are not our king. You do not rule over us. You do not consume us. You do not oppress us. Our king is Jesus. And declaring that is brave in today's culture. And declaring that is prophetic. Through the humble faith of Shipra and Pua, God turns events to his purposes. Do you notice in the text, the more Pharaoh's oppression increases, the more, we see it in verse 20, the number of Israelites grows. The measure of oppression, oppression becomes the measure of multiplication. And there is such a sweet and beautiful and redemptive irony in God's providence what was the cry of Pharaoh? The cry of Pharaoh was, kill the sons. Kill the sons. Because the one threat, the one group of people 
that is not even on Pharaoh's radar at that point is the daughters. They're good for breeding. They're good for selling into sex slavery. That's all they're good for. We do not need to fear them. But God has other plans because it is the daughters of Israel and sweet irony, Pharaoh's own daughter, that God goes on in chapter 2 to use to further his plans for Moses. There are five women in Exodus 1 and 2 who are key to the survival of Moses, Shipra and Pua, Jochebed, Moses' mother, Miriam, Moses' sister, and Pharaoh's daughter. These five women deliver the deliverer. Moses had a genocidal ruler who had decreed his death. He had the people of Egypt carrying out that ruler's edict, and he had the Nile to deal with. The output of the Nile River is 99,940 cubic feet per second. That's 6.2 million pounds of water per second in motion. Thank you very much. And Moses is three months old. He's not old enough to hide. He's not old enough to fight. And he's certainly not old enough to swim. But do you see what happens? A sovereign God is at work. The search parties and the violent mobs don't find Moses. The Nile doesn't drown Moses. And he comes to the attention of a compassionate royal daughter. And in that moment that Pharaoh's daughter spots Moses in his basket on the riverbank of the Nile. There is somebody else there. There is Miriam, Moses' sister. And Miriam is razor sharp, and she is audacious, and she is perceptive. She spots what is going on with Pharaoh's daughter. And quick as you like it, she says, shall, uh, shall, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Talk about quick thinking. (laughs) And Moses' mother is brought, and Moses ends up as an adopted child in the royal household where he grows up in safety until the first defining moment of adulthood in chapter 2, verse 11. We read, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and a sidebar for the moment, anywhere in literature, be it the Bible or elsewhere, when a main character looks this way and that, it's a clue that they're about to do something they shouldn't do. Um, Looking this way and that and seeing no one, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And then in verse 15, Funnily enough, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. When Moses is vulnerable and weak, when Moses is a small baby, God delivers him. And it's a foreshadowing of what is to come. It's a foreshadowing of God drawing his people out of Egypt and also of Jesus delivering us. But do you notice as Moses is delivered as a small baby, when he grows up and is powerful, when he is able to look after himself, to hide and to fight, at that point, he takes deliverance into his own hands. Moses is a good man. He is a godly man. The book of Hebrews talks of his great faithfulness to the purposes of God. But in this moment, 
His temper gets the better of him. And rather than trusting God, he tries to be God. He tries to sort it out himself. And by playing God, Moses postpones the hour of deliverance for God's people and ends up in the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. And next week and in the weeks to come, we're going to see how God still redeems, how God still remembers. But at this moment, at the end of chapter 2, what can we learn? I think we learn that we can trust in a God who remembers us. God is always at work, even when we can't see it, and even when adversity and our circumstances would suggest otherwise. Chapters 1 and 2 show us the truth of Spurgeon's words. God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. There are going to be those of us here this evening who cannot trace, who cannot see tangibly, God's hand at work in our situations or the situations of those we love at the moment. And there is encouragement from Exodus, from what we have just read, that if you can't see God, trust him. Trust that he is at work, that he is working for your goodness. Because from the experience of the midwives and Moses, there is another question that I think we have to ask ourselves. And it's a question that we say to the Holy Spirit, come, come and search our hearts. Because how many times in difficulty or confusion, rather than trusting God, do we try to be him? At the moment in my life, I wouldn't say that I'm in a place of adversity, but there are definitely disappointments and frustrations with God's plans and God's purposes. And what I need to ask is, Lord, show me. Show me those places where I am trusting you, but also show me those places where I am trying to be you. Because that never ends well. We can trust in a God who has rescued us. God's rescue of his people in Exodus foreshadows what is to come in Jesus. Paul in Colossians writes, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that one of the most beautiful things ever written? That we are called out of the dominion of darkness, out of what consumes and oppresses us, and we are brought into the kingdom of Jesus who has given us redemption. God has brought you and me into the kingdom of the son he loves. And in bringing us into that kingdom, God remembers his promises fully and finally for all, for the entire world, not just for the Israelites, for Jew and for Gentile, for all. If you can't see God's hand at the moment, trust Trust that he is working out his redemptive plan 
for eternity. Trust him. God says amen to his promise. He has remembered you. He does remember you. He remembers you and he's going to surprise you. When we read the story we've just read, we see a God who is surprising. He is steadfast and he is surprising. God uses the most unlikely people in Shipra and Pua. When the darkness descends on a patriarchal nation, who do you think comes to the rescue? Two women who the text makes us believe can't have their own children. In a patriarchal nation that prizes fertility, who does God use? Those two midwives. And for all his greatness, for all his influence and power, notice in the text that Pharaoh is just Pharaoh. He's unnamed. Pharaoh is a generic prefix like king or lord. He is the most powerful ruler of the most powerful empire up to that point in human history. And he's just Pharaoh. But Shipra and Pua are remembered individually. Be encouraged that in your very ordinariness, God remembers you. Shipra and Pua are brilliant examples of two very, very ordinary women who I imagine when they got the call to the palace were a little bit fearful, were tired and weary. They had back-breaking work in the slave camps. They were ordinary women who sought first the kingdom of God. And they delivered the deliverer. If I can leave you with an encouragement this evening, what are we about as a church? Well, we're about a lot of things. But we're really about one thing. We're about seeking first the kingdom of God. We're about Jesus. I don't know why you come to the 6 p.m., I really hope you don't come for the coffee, however amazing it is. I actually, in some ways, really hope you don't come for your friends, however amazing they are. And that's a brilliant and it's a good thing. I hope you come for Jesus. I hope you come to seek first the kingdom of God. I hope that you know that Jesus remembers you and that we are called to give everything and to lay down everything so that we can seek his name and glorify his name first. That is really the story of Shipra and Pua, two very ordinary women who sought first the kingdom of God. That's 
the kind of follower of Jesus I want to be. That's the kind of follower of Jesus I want us to be. We're really ordinary. We're really ordinary. Yet, we are called into the kingdom. And there God does amazing things. Amazing things.